In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place, where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. I'm your host, Miranda Schmiederer, and this season, we're doing a deep dive into the Coppergate excavation. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. So far this season, we've learned about the excavation itself and the amazing artifacts from not just Vikings, but also Romans, medieval people, and Victorians who called Coppergate home. Today, we're trading our high-vis vests for lab coats to learn more about the science of the soil and the conservation techniques that our team still use today to preserve these fantastic finds. We'll be talking to Ian Panter, head of conservation here at York Archaeological Trust, who has actually worked on conserving Coppergate. You might notice I said conserve and not restore. As we talked about in our Viking Finds episode this season, there's a difference between conservation and restoration. In restoration, specialists are trying to bring an artifact back to its original appearance and form. A lot of times that means filling in the broken parts or adding new bits altogether. For conservation, specialists work to maintain the artifact as it is so that future generations can see the whole story of the artifact, not just the original creation of it. A lot of times, a particular item is used multiple times in multiple ways. At Coppergate, Roman bricks were reused during Viking times to line hearths, pottery kilns, and blacksmith forges. If we decided to restore these bricks, part of the brick's story would be lost. But if we conserve the bricks, archaeologists and visitors alike can learn how Vikings recycled material around them and how the Romans made the bricks in the first place. Since we want you to know as much of the story as possible, we have a conservation department here at York Archaeological Trust. And of course, the leader of that department is with us today. We actually went over to the conservation lab to chat with Ian for this episode. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. In our first episode, we mentioned that it was the soil at Coppergate that preserved these finds. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes the soil so special? Yeah, basically, it's just it's waterlogged because it's sort of medieval, Viking, medieval. In fact, right back to the Roman times, York, the settlement at York has been between two rivers, the you know the land, the confluence of the, the River Ouse and the River Foss. So we've got a lot of waterlogged deposits, and it's the water that, that gives the, the preservation of the organic material because if you imagine the water's filling the, the, the soil, the, the voids, the spaces within the soil. The air that's normally there in uh, in sort of normal soil is no longer there. It's been replaced by the water. So because you've got low oxygen or no oxygen, then any sort of microbes or, or bacteria, moulds, things like that, that tend to digest organic material, they no longer live there. So you get fantastic preservation of organic material. So um, if it's the water surrounding the artefacts that preserves them, what happens when the archaeologists remove the artifacts from the wet soil they have to keep everything wet as they're, as they're digging down through the through the layers and before they they remove everything so really it's sort of having to sort of spray the soil as they're excavating keep everything wet and if there's anything fragile and vulnerable then call the conservators in and lift the items get them into the conservation lab where we can sort of put them into into tanks and, and containers and, and keep everything underwater and that will then stop um, everything you know further decay occurring we may have to use sort of chemicals to uh, try and sort of control biological activity in those tanks while the items are are under storage as well. There's a really great sound clip of someone talking about uh, how Richard Hall was always going around Coppergate shouting, keep that wood wet! <laughs> <laughs> 
In the 1970s, archaeologists didn't really have um, a ton of experience preserving items on site. So what techniques did they come up with to prevent further damage to the artifacts? It's got quite a few interesting techniques, actually, that uh, there's been a sort of a range of, of processes that have been used from sort of creosote that we used to apply to uh, defences um, before we suddenly realised it was toxic. Oh, um, no. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a banned item now. It's, <laughs> you can't sort of coat your fence in creosote because I think it gives you cancer but there are a number of log boats that were preserved that way but we we were experimenting with uh, a technique called acetone rosin uh, which was highly dangerous um, because it um, involved heating the acetone to uh, to a high temperature to get the rosin which is a natural tree resin Mm -hmm. Um, it's like amber um, so you need to get that into solution in the in the acetone the only way to do that is to heat it and and the flash point of of acetone is about 17 degrees centigrade so you've got to be very careful because mm-hmm. um, it could explode so 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 we had a facility in our old laboratory um, which was designed to, to do that but all our lights and all our switches had to be spark proof because with the volume of acetone we had if you know the switch came in the first thing in the morning switch the light on then it could go boom so <laughs> so and, we're, and at that time we were at the back of peter adamon's garden in effect so he right. obviously he obviously didn't want to lose his house so uh, so we were sort of using those sorts of techniques but but at that time I guess in the in the late 70s early 80s and the Scandinavians were experimenting with peg wax mm-hmm. on their Viking longships and and such things so so we sort of really sort of followed what they were doing and, and adopted the, the techniques is that what we still do today then we do that's right yes yeah, so what we what we started off doing back in the uh, sort of I guess the early 80s and the, all the the Coppergate house timbers that are on display those were all treated with polyethylene glycol but we we took those up to around about 80 90 percent peg wax mm-hmm. and then we slowly air dried them um, and in actual fact they were they were slow air dried actually within the within Jorvik one um, because the, the the timetable for getting them off site getting them conserved and on display in the first Jorvik was was quite tight Jim and his team at that point had to take them out of the, the treatment tank take them down to Jorvik and put them on display and let them slowly air dry there oh wow <laughs> You do some monitoring of it, and um, and there's very little movement of the timbers. Wow, yeah. that's quite good. Yeah, it was actually, yeah, it's quite, <laughs> quite, quite encouraging. But the the, t- the I mean, the process we use now is freeze drying, mm-hmm. um, and you actually you use less polyethylene glycol wax when you're freeze drying so freeze dried timbers look more natural they've got a, a sort of brownier color whereas you notice the, the copper gate timbers which are air dried they look black and, and feel quite waxy in our first episode this season tales from the trenches we heard jim spriggs talk about setting up the first conservation lab at Coppergate. in case you missed it here it is again I arrived in York one gloomy October day in 1972 to take up my post as conservator at the newly founded York Archaeological Trust with very little idea of what to expect. I was familiar with excavations having done lots of digging previously but had no experience on how to set up a laboratory and little idea on how to staff and run one. My first permanent conservation lab was two small basement rooms in St Mary's Lodge on Marygate which were dark, damp and prone to flooding. But I and my gradually expanding staff and students managed to survive down there for almost eight years. Equipment was begged and borrowed from various places, including some lovely solid mahogany benches originally from the food department in Woolworths. The waterlogging at Coppergate had caused the spectacular survival of the original timbers and wattle and daub that made up the buildings and structures that stood on the site in the Viking period. 
For me, the excitement was slowly tempered by the realisation that I was chiefly responsible for looking after all this wood, both on site during excavation, then getting it lifted and stored safely, and probably then also conserving it permanently. There was little experience within the UK at the time on how to deal with waterlogged materials en masse after lifting, but common sense told us that what we were going to need was a lot of tanks to store everything in, supported and packed to avoid damage and underwater. So we started to build tanks out of wood lined with plastic, then out of fibreglass, and finally, for the larger timbers over a metre or so in length, we got the use of a huge outdoor concrete-lined wartime fire reserve tank on Clifton Aerodrome. There was an old wartime petrol-driven fire pump kept on site for emergencies that came in very handy when we needed to pump the thousands of gallons of water out of the tank for cleaning and maintenance, or, much later on, for selecting timbers for conservation. You can hear more from Jim, as well as other people who worked on the Coppergate excavation, in that episode. So give it a listen after this one, of course. Jim Spriggs was instrumental in not only setting up the conservation lab, but also coming up with new techniques for uh, conserving all of these organic materials. Can you tell us more about these conservation techniques? Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, it's quite informative that Jim, I think, was the first member of staff appointed by Peter Adiman, who, who realised the importance of conservation, So, especially when you're working in, in an area with waterlogged deposits. So, so yeah, Jim was at the, at the cutting edge, and say, so, you know, I think he, he was mad enough to do Developed the acetone rosin process into into what it into what, what it was at that time. He had the nerve to uh, to deal with that, um, and then he, he he started developing other techniques for treatment of leather using again using polyethylene glycol, certain grade of polyethylene glycol wax, which is a, a liquid at room temperature. And then he started to use glycerol again, similar. To, well, I think it is the the food preservative that's that's used in the in food processing. We we now use that. For, for glycerol. So, so Jim was, yeah, he was instrumental in developing quite a few techniques. While researching this episode, we've come across a lot of pictures of Jim in these big tanks where they were keeping huge timbers and other artifacts wet. You can see some of these pictures on our Instagram, at Jorvik Viking. We've even got a clip of him talking about these tanks. There was little experience within the UK at the time on how to deal with waterlogged materials en masse after lifting, but common sense told us that what we were going to need was a lot of tanks to store everything in, supported and packed to avoid damage and underwater. So we started to build tanks out of wood lined with plastic, then out of fibreglass, and finally, for the larger timbers over a metre or so in length, we got the use of a huge outdoor concrete-lined wartime fire reserve tank on Clifton Aerodrome. There was an old wartime petrol-driven fire pump kept on site for emergencies, that came in very handy when we needed to pump the thousands of gallons of water out of the tank for cleaning and maintenance, or, much later on, for selecting timbers for conservation. Oh gosh, yes, that was the... Uh... <laughs> It was the fire-fighting tank up at Clifton Airfield, yeah, uh, which is no longer there. Um, it's now um, housing estate. Oh, really? But what Jim and I had to go in, I think it must have been about 98, 99, because 
because they had sold off the it was it was being used as a grain store and they'd sold that off to the housing developers who then contacted us and said I think you got timbers in this <laughs> in this tank. So Jim and I went in there and fished out all this old Coppergate timber. Oh my goodness. There were also timbers that had been recovered from the Minster in the Minster fire in nineteen eighty four. So he took those out. It wasn't very pleasant. Not and, ideal. And I was just thinking just Jim and I in there health and safety nightmare but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got we got everything out and everything was in fantastic condition. Wow, even yeah, still, it, even still, it was so amazing. Was there any sort of monitoring then in between when they were originally put in there and you know the no? I think I think I think Jim put them in there thinking he'd, he'd be retired before we had to get them out. <laughs> <laughs> He had no intention of getting them out. It was just that we were forced into it because the land was had been sold. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he just you know he just put them in there. Everything was double wrapped in policy yeah. and labelled, and you know they were in really good condition when they came out. That's incredible. It was. Well, you know that it, the conservation's working. Then, that's don't right. You? Yes, that's right. Because <laughs> we also had a series of about up to about ten or twelve glass fibre tanks behind the art gallery. Um, but again, that's now that's all been developed yeah. is all part of the art gallery now there, there used to be there's at the back of the art gallery in between the art gallery and the the wall of the abbey um, there was a series of prefabs that was part of the um, I think it was the Canadian Air Force buildings that they had during the during the Second World War and there's a bit of land there that, that he had tanks on and I remember it always used to get overgrown so when he'd say you've got to go and get these timbers out of the tanks he'd bring his machete in that he used in, in Belize and uh, we'd spend a day sort of chopping down the vegetation oh my goodness. before we could actually get into the tanks so oh my gosh and he had everything there from Coppergate right the way through to you know the, the Roman timbers from um, Queen's Hotel and, and such like so he had quite a few of the old favorites in there wow that's incredible <laughs> I love that it seems like especially right at the beginning it was every everything like the space that we used and the equipment we used was a bit bag borrowed and stolen you know sort it of was, thing you it know? was it was yes 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 Jim Jim was great for um, quite annoying actually at times he'd, he'd be coming to work or at lunchtime and he'd go past the skip and there'd be something in the skip and he'd pull it out and bring it in he'd, um, one day it'd be nice to have some really you know a brand new laboratory yeah. to, but that, that was the way things were done in those days yeah and, and yeah I mean, I mean, we would um, if if we didn't have to buy something, if we could convince the uh, developer to uh, or, or whoever to, to let, you know donate something to us, then then that's the way we'd go. All the better, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in actual fact, our first freeze dryer, a very small freeze dryer, was I think that was that was donated to us from Hato, which was a Danish company, and it was the Danish Queen who who's I think she asked them to donate a small freeze dryer to us. That's amazing. It is, yeah, yeah. We've got some really great pictures of her in the conservation lab as well um because she was i guess she was a friend of um peter adamans she was yeah um but she yeah. she studied archaeology as well yeah. so she she's properly like investigating everything and all the pictures and stuff it's, it's i love that she donated something as well or had it arranged yeah so that's that's because i mean i think I don't, I don't know what the cost of freeze dryers was back in back in that day but I mean, it's expensive now so yeah. something that the trust wouldn't be able to to afford so you know, if they could get something given to them or or part given and then that was all well and good. But that's how the lab was set up. It was I love it. donations mainly. So and Jim's Jim's ability to find things in skip. Sounds like a magpie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
His um, house is very tidy. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do as far as especially conservation and things that um, today that's different than how things were done in the 70s then? Actually very little's changed. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, so, I, mean, I mean obviously we, we now use freeze drying more yeah. than say solvents um, because of the health and safety issues. Um, so it's a no-no trying to do acetone rosin now. We try to do it as cold mm-hmm. but it doesn't work as, as well so, so we've sort of knocked that on the head and it's mainly mainly freeze drying but it's also I mean I mean the techniques that were being de- developed back in the 60s and the 70s we're now you know we're now what, 40 50 years of, of use so we, we know how these materials react and, and, and it. yeah and, the, and that, well, we begin to see the problems with them now so uh, you know we, we learned, we've learned a lot and uh, we still learn but, but yeah we, we tend to, to use the same sort of things but yeah I mean you know it's, it's it's the way conservation is actually we're very sort of archaeology as well you know we're, you know we're working in the past so we, we take things slowly so today yacht has become really well known for um its wood conservation so um what other projects have come your way that you've gotten to work on as far as wood conservation oh, and quite. the mary rose yeah well I, I, I mean we haven't done any work for the mary rose but okay. i but i worked for the mary rose um before coming up to up to york so yep. i was on the mary rose from 1980 to 86 That's amazing a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was fun and just before the ship came up and that was that was a good time that again you know we we're we were doing stuff that had never been done before in the country, but using sort of te- looking at techniques that, that Scandinavian colleagues were, were developing. A quick aside, since we haven't talked about the Mary Rose on this podcast before. The ship has its own fascinating history, but people mostly know it as the pride of the Navy during Henry VIII's reign. It was built in 1510 and sunk in 1545 and was a crucial part of several battles during that period. It was rediscovered in the 1960s, and marine archaeologists who are trained to do excavations underwater in places like the North Sea or the Thames River carefully dug the ship out of the silt from 1979 to 1982, which means it was going on at the same time as the Coppergate excavation. In 1982, the main section was carefully raised out of the sea and, of course, had to be conserved. Luckily for everyone, Ian was on hand as part of the conservation team. But yeah, we do quite a lot of lot of work, external work. I guess, I mean, one of the more challenging ones for me at the moment is the project I'm doing in Sydney, in Australia, which is the uh, the Barang, what's known as the Barangaroo boat. Um, and this was uncovered in um, 2018. Right. Um, Sydney Metro, uh, who are sort of government organisation, they're basically um, building a new um, metro uh, system. So they were putting a new underground station in Barangaroo which is on Darling Harbour and found the remains of this boat um, which date I mean, it's, it dates to around about the 1830s 1840s so wow. it, it, in our time scanning it's not it's not very old still quite cool though it's, it's yeah. very for the Australians it's very significant because it's I mean, there they, they used to be a, a law in Australia that you know you weren't allowed to build boats mm-hmm. obviously because you're because <laughs> of your background then you know you, you might escape, you might escape. <laughs> so, so this is this is thought to be one of the first non-indigenous boats that's yeah. been that's been built um, in Australia. It's all built out of Australian timber. Wow. In a very sort of rudimentary fashion by by people who I think have seen boat building going on but they, never not, done it they've never done it themselves. They're almost like, I'd say, sort of cabinet makers because wow. you get a lot of little wooden dowels and, and 
micro small nails being used in the construction so so I got approached to sort of help them set up a, a wood conservation centre in, in Sydney and oversee the conservation so I went over there in 2019 and then Covid hit so it's, it's teaching these guys over there how to do wood conservation via Zoom in the in the early hours of the morning and it's a it's an interesting one got got two well got several projects over there now because they um, there's the Brangaroo boat which is the the most important one mm-hmm. and then there's what we call the Windsor boats and there's about three they're not as significant or not as much as the Brangaroo boat but this was um, again similar similar project and a new bridge at Windsor going over the the river which, which was flooded actually a few weeks ago they had horrendous rainfall so they were flooded yeah. and, and this new bridge they built was underwater oh my god <laughs> nightmare yeah so uh, so there's those ones as well which which, wow. which i'm now looking after as well so so i hope to get back over there next year possibly we're definitely going to have to come back and hear about that thanks again for speaking with us ian if you want to learn more about the mary rose or the barangaroo boat you can find links in our show notes Ian mentioned how the different drying techniques can change the look of the final conserved wood. You can come and see for yourself. The Jorvik Viking Center reopens the 17th of May, 2021. Book your tickets now at jorvikvikingcenter.co.uk. Stay tuned for our final episode of the season, where we'll discuss how Coppergate changed our understanding of the Vikings in the British Isles with our very special guest, Sarah Maltby, the Director of Attractions here at York Archaeological Trust. Did you know that your Vic Viking Thing podcast is an Audible associate? Click the link in our show notes or go to audibletrial.com forward slash Viking Thing 21 to sign up for a free 30-day Audible trial. When you do, you'll get a free audiobook download and you'll be supporting your favorite Viking podcast. Even better, the audiobook is yours to keep forever. No strings attached. This time, we recommend Ships from the Depths by Friedrich Soriide. Researcher and explorer Friedrich Soriide tells us about the development of underwater archaeology since 1971, when a sea probe was designed to locate and rise deep water wrecks in the Mediterranean. Along with examples of deep water projects and equipment, this book describes the techniques that have been developed for locating and observing these sites, as well as excavation and removal methods unique to these special locations, far beyond the reach of scuba gear. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support that Jorvik Viking Thing, please visit jorvikthing.com to make a donation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and the York Archaeological Trust, researched by Miranda Schmiederer and Ashley Fisher, written and produced by Ashley Fisher, sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.